Hello, welcome to Exploring the Heart of Change with me, Dr. Paul Taylor Pitt. Change happens. How we respond to it can sometimes take us by surprise, even if the change seems positive. I've spent my career working with organisations, teams and individuals who want to make change happen. And in this podcast, I'll be speaking with people who have felt the breath of change up close. People who've made a change and regretted it or loved it. People who make change happen in communities and organisations. People who change happen to, whether they wanted it or not. Their stories are all different. And at the end of each one, I pose the same question. Can we find art at the heart of change? You can find out more about me and my work at drpaultaylorpitt.com. And for now, just sit back, relax, enjoy the stories, and let's explore the heart of change together. This podcast is brought to you by Metamorphosis Limited. With 25 years of helping people, teams and organisations to grow, develop, change and learn more about themselves, our philosophy is to be more you. That's when amazing things happen. It's a type of metamorphosis when you're still recognisably yourself. Metamorphosis. We're a specialist consulting practice offering organisation development from team to whole system. We offer performance and somatic coaching for one-to-one and teams. We offer mentorship, research, exploration. Change is our purpose. Curiosity is our fuel and creativity is our process. Get in touch at metamorphosis.com. I'm really proud of this next conversation. Not proud for having it, but certainly proud that it's out there in the world because I think it's a conversation that a lot of people need to hear. Dr. Jack Lopez is someone who always makes me think, makes me laugh, uh, helps me to learn. And in this conversation, Jack talks about the changes that he brought to others when he revealed who he was. We talk about how you navigate change without a map, how you support family and loved ones through adjustments. And we talk about the importance of not regretting our decisions, how we move forward, how we make the most of each day. And one thing that really stood out for me is Jack's utter lack of fear, which I think is so inspiring. So this is a lovely conversation, very profound. We talk about how do we courageously embrace change and really live fully. So yeah, enjoy this one. Tell your friends. How would you like people to know you? How would I like people to know me? Yeah. Uh, Gosh. Um, I've never been asked that before. That is a really good question. Um... And I do think about that a lot because I spend the, too much of my time on dating apps these days. <laughs> so it's a constant question. How do I want people to know me? I, gosh, oh, you've stumped me already. We've only just started. I would like, I would like people to at first see me as the middle-aged man that I am and notice just how young we can be in our mid-40s and how young we can look because people always say that as a surprise when they see my age and I just think I look 46 this is this is what 46 looks like yeah it it reminds me we live in a very age-obsessed youth-obsessed world especially in the queer community I don't think I ever looked like that, even at 26. I don't think I ever looked that. I think I was permanently like 60. Well, this is the thing. I think I looked 46 when I was 30. So, like, okay. I, you know, it just shows that I think happiness 
allows you to look your age. I'm never trying to look younger than my age. So yeah, I'd like people to see me in that way. And I'd like people to know me as, I'm going to describe myself like a pet dog now, very reliable and loyal. Yeah. <laughs> um, to a point, mm -hmm. which is something I've learned from life. Mm -hmm. is and my point comes when i truly feel that somebody's taking advantage of my kindness mm -hmm. i've worked for many years to realize how much of a people pleaser i am mm -hmm. um and we'll get into that in a bit in terms of how i've experienced change throughout life but i've also realized there is actually a fine line between being a narcissist and being a people pleaser actually mm -hmm. I think I think those things are very close. And I think at certain points in my life, depending on what I've gone through, I've been either or. Mm -hmm. And that's that's when people will really, really know me is when I hit my point where I feel like people are taking advantage of, of my kindness. And I feel like I am overexerting myself in trying to make people happy. Mm. It's weird, but I'm actually only just learning now that that that's a that's a boundary that I need to have you know it's taken me to my mid-40s to learn that but yeah I'd like to people to know that I will show up and give a hundred percent to everything but if I'm pushed over the limit or I'm taken advantage of I will disappear in a cloud of smoke and you will never see me again yeah what about on the dating apps? How do you describe yourself there? Um, gosh, on my dating apps, I, I'm, I'm getting more and more succinct. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm very honest. Essentially, I'm incredibly lovable. I have lots of energy. I'm here for you in that moment, but I am not looking for a relationship. So don't expect one from me. Okay. Yeah. And why is it important to say that? Because I think, and I'm limited in terms of, I've strategically only use hookup dating apps. Mm -hmm. And that's because also, because I know that I'm not ready to have a relationship. Mm. Uh, I'm not in a place in my life. I have no space for one. Yeah. And probably I'm also scared. You know, yeah. I, was, I was in a, a marriage for 14 years. I'm five years out of that. I'm mm. still learning who I am outside of that relationship. Um, yeah. So, yeah, there's a fear there. So the reason why I'm like that on hookup apps is because most of the other men on there don't know what they want. Mm. And a lot are in a place where they're pretending to want to hook up where just like all of us, we're all secretly dying to fall in love and meet somebody who'll sweep us off our feet. Yeah. Um, and, and I just, I've, I've learned over the last couple of years to set my stall out from the beginning. Doesn't always go well. Half the time people don't read your profile anyway, but <laughs> I feel, you know, actually it's really important to say those things and say what you're doing because it's about that whole thing of, you know, treat others as you'd expected to be treated yourself. Mm. So I very naively feel that even on even on a hookup dating app, that I will set out my stall and let people know what to expect from me, because mm. actually that's what I expect from other people. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, one of those that I mean, already there's so much I want to talk about, but I. At the age of 49 now, I had a moment this year around that topic, around that idea of treating people as you want to be treated yourself. And I realised that often people don't know how they want to be treated. Mm. And so I've been much more curious about treating people as, as they want to be treated. Mm. Because there have been times also when I've treated myself quite badly or where I've talked to myself in a tone of voice that I would never talk to someone else in. And so there's been this sort of inquiry, I guess, for me about how do I help 
both me and the other person understand what we both need and how we both want to be treated. Because mm. if I just do it in the way I do it to myself, that's not what everyone wants. Mm. And if someone can't articulate how they want to be treated, then I've no idea. So it's really complicated. It's really difficult sometimes. It is. And especially when you're trying to reduce that down to just about every single social interaction, <laughs> interaction. There's a there's a there's a lot of going on there. Whereas I I have reduced it to a baseline that at this stage in my life, and because I wasn't for a long time, I just want to be loved and treated with respect and mm. feel loved. And I, I think on a baseline, generally that's what most human beings also want. So my baseline of treating others how I expect to be treated myself is, is to show love to people. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's also, you know, very much something I'm learning in terms of the, the conflict that I deal with in my life and a lot of my day job that revolves around um, people's rights and inequalities and activism and my own, within that, my own rights within the LGBTQ plus community and how damaging it can be and I am in a job where I have to confront people that have very challenging ideas and perspectives you know about people like me and actually I'm I'm learning also to fight that with love as well and and kindness because people find it increasingly more difficult to be aggressive towards a, a big wall of fluffy love <laughs> happiness mm. and it's becoming almost it's very difficult and it's not easy but it's it's I've actually learned you know from the various stages in my life but my my ex-mother-in-law um is an evangelical baptist christian and the whole family were and um I I stupidly thought that I could argue with that when I first kind of went into um, knowing that family and into that relationship. Um, and although none of the religious stuff is anything that I believe, I actually learn a lot from people who are so committed to their faith mm-hmm. that even their own family comes second, you mm. know, to this, this, this power of God that they believe in. Um, but actually everything that, that was done was an overpowering need to love mm-hmm. through their religion. So although the nitty gritty, when you get down to it, there's a lot that we don't agree with. Mm-hmm. Actually, it was the tool of love that they used to counteract every single argument that I had as somebody that doesn't have any religious beliefs. It's incredibly effective. And it, and it did kind of destabilized me and it did create um a situation where I I I I learned to let live and I learned about coexistence and I learned to step back god we've got very deep very quickly haven't we um but but it I took from that and thought actually that's a really good strategy you know even when my when my ex-mother-in-law was telling me with a smile on her face that you know I was gonna go to hell but it was okay because she loved me and that's fine and that you know ultimately the message was you know unless you repent kind of thing um but it's it sounds really weird out of context but she was saying that with such overwhelming love for me Mm -hmm. you know in her own way that it made me go oh it's it's really interesting how we can give these messages and how it changes when you say things from a place of love and sincerity mm-hmm. than from a place of anger. It doesn't mm-hmm. make the, the things that they say right, mm-hmm. but it really changes how you receive the message. Mm. I'm so glad we're recording this because already I'm like, I can't wait to listen to it. <laughs> Even though we're having the conversation right now. <laughs> Uh, well, you only asked me how to describe myself, and I've already gone completely off track. No, you haven't at all, because so you've already mentioned change so many times, and I guess you know a couple of my principles for this type of conversation. You know, one is that change is 
unexpected sometimes and so we haven't talked about what we're going to talk about so wherever you decide to go is totally fine and change can be unpredictable so whatever comes up is welcome you know there's nothing off limits in this space of conversation it's about whatever's there for you and also just in terms of uh like our our time like change always comes to an end whether it's the change itself or the person that comes to an end. And we we often rarely have any control over that. So uh, in the time that we've got, maybe like another 30, 35 minutes, when we get to that point, we just end. Mm. Wherever we've got to, we just end. And wherever yeah. we got to is the place that we needed to get to. Yeah. And I like that. But I also kind of, I, I have very different ideas around that as well, is that I, I think the only thing that ever comes to an end, and even that doesn't, is life. Mm. You know, and for me, even that doesn't, because in the ways within which a memory and a legacy of a person can live mm. on. Um, but I see what you mean in terms of, part, for me, it's part of the process comes to an end. Mm. Yeah. You know, and when, whenever I think about anything around change, whether it's unexpected, whether it is or it isn't, it's just a continual flow of life. Yeah. You know, that that we call change. Yeah. But actually it's all incredibly natural. Yeah. If um now I know that you've said you're not looking for a relationship, but if you were in a relationship However. With... <laughs> <laughs> if you were in a relationship with change and change said to you, Jack, I think we need to go to couples therapy. What would change say to the therapist about you and your relationship with it? Okay. So I'll try and think about this afresh and not, not when that was actually my life. <laughs> um, <laughs> and yeah, because I, yeah, like you say, yeah, I'm not looking for a, 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 a boyfriend relationship, but yeah, I, have, I am in many relationships in my life. Mm. Now, the way within which change and I coexist with each other, if change saw that there was an issue coming and we went to therapy, um, change might have something to say about the fact that I never stop mm -hmm. and I expect a lot from change. Mm -hmm but it's a continuous path. And what I never do with change is stop and think about what has changed. Right. I'm just, you know, and I think this is very much, I'm, I'm neurodiverse, I have ADHD, it's, I'm not on any, any medication. I have a level of self-medication for it, but I have no medication. So I'm, I'm very much aware of my ADHD and what it does to how I view life. But mm -hmm. I think it, I think that's only been over the last 18 months. So I'm now starting to realize that I think a lot of my continuous and multi-layered change and my expectations from it are very much connected to my neurodiversity as well. Mm -hmm. And my, my body's addiction to dopamine mm. and oxytocin and serotonin and that constant need you know, and, and uh, that comes from change because it change instigates dopamine because it's fun and it's exciting and it's different. Even if it's a, even if from the outside, it looks like a negative change. Yeah. It, it doesn't matter because what it's doing is it's pressing those little buttons mm. that, that connect to my brain, that give me a reason to live. Yeah. And yeah. And if change had an ask of you what do you think it might be stop <laughs> would probably stop. <laughs> stop um yeah just i think it would be stop because i don't i i never stop and i think the one person who would the only person in my life that that consistently tells me this is my mother because it, 
because she she's she's the one who you know because I'm I'm her baby and she she wants me to be okay and her we're very different people and her her she fears a lack of stability whereas I thrive off a lack of stability and mm. it, she's very much the one to consistently ask me to stop mm. all the time and yeah I think I, I don't know whether I'm actually capable of doing that. I don't know what would happen if I stopped. Mm. Probably a bit scared. I'd have to sit there and think about myself and my surroundings <laughs> and life. I don't want to do that. I've, ever since I was a very small child, ever since I became conscious of my conscious thought, I have sent myself spiralling into existential thoughts. Yeah. I've got no idea why I exist. I've got no idea why we all exist, what we're doing here, what this whole thing is. Um, and that can become very debilitating. That's That's been me. This is me describing myself as a five or six-year-old child thinking yeah. these thoughts. Um, and I think that's, that's why I don't stop because those are the thoughts that I have when I stop and um, I, I scare myself with with the deepness of existentialism that I can get to yeah it's 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 it, it's it's too overwhelming you know to the thoughts of just not wanting to exist because it's so overwhelming to think those thoughts yeah and I think that's one of the reasons why I like you so much because I see so much of that in me in you and you know you're right we don't do small talk <laughs> we never just show up and relax so how's things it's like you know within five minutes we're straight into the existential threat of death <laughs> and that's just the place I kind of exist on so I totally get yeah, that it takes one to know one for us <laughs> um, <laughs> So I've got a couple of questions, well, not a couple of questions, but a couple of stories I'd like to hear. One, when you made a change happen for someone else or for yourself, and another when you uh, were on the receiving end of a change where you had maybe no choice or you had to do it. Um, and because change is kind of random, I'm going to use just something around me. Uh, I'm gonna, <laughs> so I picked up my little beer. This is so narcissistic. There's you talking about narcissists. There's my little beer mat that's got me on it. <laughs> me, 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 me. <laughs> so I'm going to use it as a little coin and toss it. So if it lands with me on the face up, then we're going to look at you as a change maker. If okay. it lands that way up, then we'll start with you as a change taker. Because change is random so let's just see if you, can, you might need to give me a little sound effect as i do it oh change maker okay tell me about a time that you made a change happen okay it's in my email signature change maker so i suppose now's the time that i have to prove myself <laughs> oh wow okay just because you, you know when you want to make yourself sound special um i suppose and this I don't want to be too obvious, but actually it's very, it isn't very often that I get to have these conversations because um, I, I don't always talk about me and my own process. But if it's okay, I, I would like to speak about, you know, my, my transition into who I am. Mm, yeah. Because a lot of the time we only ever speak about that being an individual very personal thing mm -hmm. and my experience is actually throughout my life of of transitioning gender this is what I'm talking about now um wasn't was about me enforcing change on other people and we don't often think about it like that yeah. I in me, you know, apart from the, the the bits that have been chopped off, you know, and the, the biological changes in my body, that, that's dressing. Mm. It, it, it's it, it's it's dressing for me. I me haven't in my head changed. Yeah. I am the same person. Yeah. I am just 
10 times more handsome, happier, um, and people, the thing that's changed is the way that people perceive me. Okay. And that's them, that's not me, you know? So I have forced that change on other people. And um, it's been really interesting on watching the people around me adapt to that because I'm very lucky. I do not live in a world where I am isolated mm-hmm. and I'm not connected to anybody. Mm. I am a parent with four children. I am lucky enough to have both parents still myself who live very close by and mm. are very much a part of my my life. I have a huge family. I have an ex-partner who is the other parent to my children. So he's very much involved in my life and had to accept a lot about that. Other people have had to change. My children have had to change or experience the change of how the world views us as a family. Mm-hmm. You know, they went from having, from what they assumed, um, you know, a, a, a very heteronormative setup of, of a of a a mum and a dad Mm. to just having a parent to then having two dads who are separated Um, and they're having to navigate more about that than I am Mm. you know they are the ones that are in a playground talking to other children about who lives at home and who their family is or explaining to the teacher, you know, mm-hmm. when they're drawing pictures of their family makeup. And I had to learn a lot of patience around that. Mm-hmm. And also a lot of, a lot, a lot of what's the opposite of being selfish? I don't know. Can't think of what the opposite is to being. So I've had to, it's really forced me to realize that this change is more about other people than it is about myself. No. Because In a selfless way. Yeah. Because actually, you know, my I have I have teenagers, I have two teenagers and two younger children. My teenagers are having to navigate secondary school. Mm-hmm. who would who wants to do that it's horrible yeah, any yeah. of us remember being at secondary school it's one of the worst most horrible times of your life and so my children um especially my um 13 year old who particularly struggles with our identity as a family and my identity is choosing to tell people that he lives with his stepdad or that he lives with an uncle Mm -hmm. he's he's replacing me in the narrative of when he talks about his family and my first kind of egotistic reaction to that was how dare you you i'm proud of me you should be proud of me blah 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 Um, And then when I step back from that and I see the painful world that my child is trying to navigate as a 13-year-old is that he has to do what he has to do in order to survive in his Mm. world and in order to make himself feel comfortable. So it's like, yeah, it's... And there's a lot of guilt. There's a lot of guilt that comes along with me transitioning as a parent, as a a child, as a work colleague, as a friend, you know, as an ex-partner. And the guilt isn't about, I find it interesting because lots of people shut me down when I start to say that. And they start to go, no, no, you need to be proud of who you are. And it's like, well, yeah, I don't, I'm not guilty for being a man. I'm not guilty for being Jack. I'm not guilty. I don't feel guilty about any of those things. Yeah the guilt comes from having to watch those around me navigate the world with that change because they didn't ask for it. Is it a different quality of guilt? Like, does it have a different texture? Like, the reason I'm asking that, I remember when I was going from primary school to secondary school, Hmm. and over the course of that summer holidays, my parents broke up. And I didn't tell anyone. 
And so I went to secondary school just telling this story about my mum and dad being at home because I was so ashamed. I was so embarrassed. I was an only child. Still, I'm an only child. So, you know, was kind of making sense of it on my own. Mm. And so I just lied about it. Mm. it, You know, and I don't, I don't know how, well, my mum's dead now, so I, I can't really ask her about that. But I don't know how they would have felt about that with me replacing the narrative and just telling other people it didn't happen and so I'm just wondering for you do you do you get a sense of the guilt that you feel around how others are responding to your transition compared to I don't know any other parental decision that you might be sitting with that's really interesting because I've never I've never thought about the different types of guilt but it is different because I know, you know, I'm a I'm a working parent. I am a I hate not sing, a lone parent. I hate the word single parent because <laughs> that's that just like indicates you're consistently looking out for somebody. Like, I am a lone on my own parent. And there is a there is a guilt that comes from that. Yeah, very little because I'm damn good at what I do. So actually, yeah. you know, I've, I'm very good at being both parents to my children. Yeah. Um, yeah so that's fine there's a guilt that I have about being a working parent you know Mm. with a very full-time full-on academic career plus a part-time job plus the fact that you know I am I'm a workaholic Mm. you know hold my hand up and say so but because of I need that and I need to be I need to be dedicated to something. Yeah. But there is a, there's de- that's actually, yeah, that is a very different guilt. So mm. when I'm working away, when I'm late from home, when my kids are complaining, you know, when I'm working from home during the summer holidays, as I currently am today, and they're downstairs occupying themselves, that is a very different kind of guilt. Mm. And it, that's interesting because that's a guilt that I recognize because it's a type of guilt that I grew up with. It's the type mm. of guilt that is fed to me by members of my family who also feel guilt so they project it onto other people that's a very familiar type of guilt yeah and actually the guilt that I have through watching other people navigate the change of my transition is is difficult is very different it's it's more subtle and it's very difficult to put into words actually and it's because of this conflict of I have it's deep really deep down I have not changed so all of this change is for other people to experience and not me um and it is it's it's, it and it's difficult and it's but it's painful to see your children grow up anyway as teenagers and go through that just horrible painful hormonal process it's just there it's it's really difficult and it it's gosh losing lost for words but I think that around if we look at guilt in that way and I attach other words to it there's a there is a sadness attached to that mm-hmm. whereas the guilt around me being a working parent is very much a, has a has a lot of anger and frustration attached to it mm. because no one's paying my bills, man. <laughs> so, like, yeah. I, I, I don't like people commenting on the amount of time I work because, yes, I'm doing it out of joy, but I'm also doing it because I'm feeding four children and paying a mortgage and I get yeah. frustrated because, you know, because life is life is forcing me to do that. Whereas the guilt around, you know, looking at my... Not so much, not not so much my dad, but my mom and her. She loves me, supports me a hundred percent, but she is going through her her own process of she loved thinking that she had a daughter. Yeah. Um. So there's a you know she's grieving around that, and and there's a sadness around my feelings around guilt with that. Mm. Watching my child feel unable to be seen in public with me because he doesn't want to have to explain who I am Mm. um, because everybody wants to know where the mother is kind of thing. Mm. Um, You know, there's a sadness attached to that because I'm watching him struggle because at the same time he 
loves me for who I am. Mm. And I can tell that he feels really, I can see that he feels really bad about not wanting to bring me into the spaces that he inhabits. Mm. And I don't want him to feel bad, you know, so I constantly tell him it's okay that you've got to deal with it, how you deal with it. You know, I'm always here for you. Nothing's going to change in that respect. But it's, it's, it, it, these are things that are out of my control because what we're talking about here is the essence of my very existence. Mm. And all I've done, you know, and I, I can't remember where I picked this word up, this phrase up, but I haven't come out. All I've done is I've let people in mm. to meet the real me because I've always been here. Mm. And, and that is my existence who I am as a human being it's not something I can change it's not something I want to same change again yeah it's not something I can change (laughs) I cannot change who I am and I don't want to change who I am because I are we allowed to swear oh fuck yeah okay good fucking love who I am like it (laughs) you know to, to to release to let the world in to the person who I knew who I was when I was 10 years old and have been hiding that person mm. until I reached 40, you know, is, is the best celebration ever. But it's tinged with this fact that for other people, it's this huge change that they have to adapt to, that they have to get used to, you know, that society has to get used to, that, yeah. that all, all of that kind of stuff, yeah. Like you're making people do the work rather than you fixing it for everyone and yeah. make everyone feel okay by either being who you're not or just being so like, what's the word I'm looking for? So amenable that yeah. you just make everyone feel okay. Yeah. And there is, from what I'm hearing, there is that aspect of selflessness to it where you're like, yeah, I have to support my family, my kids to be okay. And if that means I have to put myself to the side for a while in their space, then I'm going to do that. You know, that, that yeah. is really selfless. That's, that's the job of a parent, I guess. But that's what, but also, but that's what I was doing for years when I wasn't being true mm. to the world as to who I am. And actually, you know, when I was talking before about what I've learned about being a people pleaser, this has been the big shift of that change making is actually being able to communicate to the world about the fact that this is a non-negotiable in terms of I'm, I'm not here as my true self to please anybody. Yeah. It's the opposite. And actually, you know, this is where, a lot of the the tension occurs with how other people deal with the change that I've forced on them is that for the first time in my life, I'm not trying to fix and make it better for people. Mm. You know, I've, I've sat here and gone, this is, this is me, (laughs) you know, um, essentially the bottom line of that is deal with it. Yeah. You know, um, and and it, it's been really interesting to see that people really don't there's, there's there's lots of levels of change that that people don't like but i also think in the long term it's it's also really showing people um you know that my kids will grow up eventually and see what it's taken for me to be who i am mm. And ultimately, my main aim with that and my relationship with them of showing them that we can cope through all this change throughout our lives, regardless of whether it's my gender, moving house, you know, being on our own, all that kind of stuff, Mm. is that anything is possible. You can survive so much more, you know, than you you realise, which is the kind of, the thing where I don't, I don't see, you know, for, this is why for me it's not so much of, it's not, people will look at me and go, oh, your transition, that's all about your change for you. And it's so not about me. Mm. All this is, 
is part of my life course. And those people who are satellites around me are the people that are having to experience change. Mm. So does any of this make any sense? Oh, it makes total sense to me. It's also making me think of something that I've long believed, which I'm not saying is any kind of equivalent, but, you know, like we're both heavily inked men. We both go under the needle quite a lot for a bit of tattooing. Mm. I've often thought or believed that the tattoo is already there under your skin. What the needle does is it just reveals it Mm. because it's something when I look at each of mine, there's something in me that needed to be revealed at that point. And, you know, some of them are meaningless and some of them have got massive significance or, you know, symbolism. But for me, it's about just revealing more of who I am. Yeah. And by revealing more of who I am, it gives me the potential to change if I want to. Yeah. And what I'm hearing from you is you have not changed. You've let people see who you've always been. And then that's given you the potential to change if you want to mm-hmm. and to be alongside them as they're working out, well, how do we relate to this change? Yeah. You, you said earlier about navigating and you're, as a family, you're doing it without a map. There is no map about how you navigate that change in a way that, you know, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, there was no real map about what it's like if one of your kids says that they're queer or what it's like, you know, maybe 50 years ago, if a parent separates, you know, all of these situations that we come across and there's no map, you have to write your own. And that's, you know, it's something that I don't just admire in you, but I think it's incredibly generous of you. Like when Dan and I went to watch your documentary in the cinema and it was like, oh, this is showing people how to do it. This is creating the map so that other people can find their way through it. That's so, that's, that is such a gorgeous thing to hear. Because I just, and this goes back to me never stopping to think about what I'm doing. <laughs> I just, I don't, it, to me, I just, what I'm sure, for me with, with things like the the film and the things that I write about and when I speak you know, and have conversations like this. I just feel that I'm just revealing my mess to people and in the hope that that people will be reassured that it's okay to be a mess mm. and that I too will get reassurance by telling other people <laughs> about my mess that it's okay. Mm. Um, because you, I, I know that if there was a roadmap, I wouldn't stick to it anyway. <laughs> Because there's there's something there's a biological imperative in me <laughs> yeah. that when someone says turn left, I will turn right, and when someone says turn right, I will turn left. But that's why you're creating the map and not following it. You're the one that's actually blazing the trail and going. That's the direction I need to go in, and then you can invite people to follow you in that. But you can also tell them about some of the adventures you had on the way and the things that you might do differently or the things that you might, you know, want to do over and over again. But that's maybe why you're creating the map and not following it. Yeah. I think it this, I like to feel, I like, and I suppose this goes back to your very first question when you asked me to describe myself. I, I like, I like to know that people can just trust me that it's going to be okay Mm. and that it's actually and I do this a lot when I go hiking and with walks with my friends and I've got a couple of friends like one of my best friends we go hiking with he used to be in the army so he's very much like you know where's the map where's your interior (laughs) and I'm just like I'm just going to follow my nose like let's let's go down this path because this path looks interesting yeah and it's it's yeah I think it's I don't I, I don't consciously think that I'm creating a way of doing things, but what I am consciously hoping is that people will come along with me for the ride. Mm. And I think even if they don't, and I use myself in this example of I remember when we were on the leadership retreat <laughs> and you were like, Yeah, I'm just gonna go off and go swimming in that lake. And I thought, firstly, fuck that. It's cold. <laughs> Secondly, 
but but what's in there you know i had all these images of like you know you were going to go in there and suddenly you'd get trapped in the weeds or there'd be a fucking shark or something and so i remember thinking i wish i had the courage to just go swimming in a lake but the fact that you were doing it even though i chose not to gave me hope that it was possible yeah. because i immediately was like well that's not for me but now I know it's possible. And maybe there will come a time when I do decide to go jumping and swimming in the lake. Yeah. But there's something in that, the the way that you, I think, throw yourself at life and have the courage to go, yeah, I don't know what's underneath the surface, but I'm just going to try it out. Yeah. I like that, Paul. You've got an approach of let let Jack break his leg first. Yeah. And then... And then if he doesn't, then I'll know it's okay. <laughs> yeah. And if and if you don't call for help, it's either because everything's fine or the shark got you. Yeah. You know, yeah. but you know, lessons were learned both ways. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, I, I am, you know, much, much to much to my mother's headaches, migraines, that I'm like I'm like that though, because I was brought up with a parent who is very much the opposite of that. Right. Yeah. And it, it drove me insane, <laughs> you know, and that my 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 path through life is, you know, what what is the worst? What is the worst that can happen? Mm. And I wonder whether some of this is connected to my obsessive, you know, childhood um, obsessions over existentialism and why we're here, mm. because not only you know, on the one hand, it becomes so overwhelming that I become completely prostate, I can't move and life doesn't, and I, I hit a brick wall and I just think I may as well be dead. Yeah. But actually, also, on the other hand, the other thing that it does, because when you spend so much of your weird childhood thinking about death, <laughs> you also don't have a fear of death. Mm. So I'm quite happy to throw myself into a lot of things because because I don't have a religion, I don't have thoughts of the afterlife. Mm -hmm. My idea is I've got I haven't got a fucking clue what's going to happen, and actually I just think that's it. Mm. You are just you are nothing but your memories once you're gone, mm. um, and so I'm not going to know anyway if I'm dead. So you know. Um, and I get told, I get told by my mum, <laughs> sorry, my mum is a lovely person. I always end up saying horrible things about her. She's such a lovely person. She just lives on fear. And I get a lot of messages, I will get messages of people either via my mum or other parents kind of insinuating that that's a really selfish way to think once you're a parent, because you should worry about what's left behind mm -hmm. and you should try and preserve as much of your life as possible so that your children will be okay. Mm. But I, I I know people that didn't have their parents around and, and that they're, they're okay. Yeah. I know people that didn't and they're not okay, but you know, that this this, this that that's life. Yeah. And I just think, well, the one thing I don't want to do, and luckily I've never had this because I don't have words tattooed to me, and luckily I didn't stupidly have it tattooed to me when I was about <laughs> 17. But I don't want to live a life that has regrets because mm. and, and I think you can change narratives to say whether you regret something or not but you know and, and I think coming back to this this theme of change as well is that I'm always very very you know and I don't care whether I'm telling myself this stuff and if you delve deep down maybe I'm just changing my narrative but I do not regret a single decision slash change that I have ever made in my life, regardless yeah. of what the outcome was. Yeah. Because what's the point in regretting things that you can't change? You know, it, it, it makes no sense. And I think that orientation of people who have those kind of regrets is that they're looking backwards all the time. And I know for me, I'm, I'm not, a reflective person like you know I don't sit and brood on stuff I'm yeah. always thinking about what's next yeah and and there may be a downside to that but I don't personally see it for me that's just not who I am yeah. and you know in in the words of the great sage Madonna she's got lyrics in a song where she says I don't want to get to the end of my days saying I wasn't amazed 
And I love that idea that, you know, you get right up until your very last day, you can be amazed by life and how awful it would be, how awful it must be to spend your days looking backwards, going, I wish I hadn't done that, or I wish I'd tried that. And that's now making me think I need to go and swim in a lake because I don't want to get to the end of my days and go, I wish I'd swam in that lake. Exactly. But this is the point of, you know, I think that my whatever my whether it's a biological imperative whether it's just life circumstance I want to make sure that I wake up every day and know that I can die happy because I've done loads of shit Mm. you know and I have done a lot of shit in my life (laughs) I have done so much that it's impossible to answer questions like you know tell me about a time when you've changed or you've done too much shit like it's it's it scares me i don't realize how much shit i've done until i speak to other people and they're like what you've done this you've lived where you've had just uh." but that is because i know that i can wake up every day and, and go if i've got five minutes to live that's all right because i've done so much mad shit that somebody could happily write three or four books about me when I'm gone, <laughs> which will just all end with, and he was well busy. You know? <laughs> and I, it, it, it's not about me. You know, some people have accused me of, and I think this is people that look back too much, accuse me of trying to run it. You know, I'm constantly running. What are you running away from? Why are you trying constantly trying to escape something? I'm like, I'm not. I'm just like, we're just here once, you know, and I can even look at, you know, living the majority of my life so far, you know, being perceived as a person that I'm not, I could get sad and regret that, but I don't because all that time when I had this shield of, of femininity around me that other people were kind of misreading as, as, as me being a a woman. I was just getting ready. (laughs) It's like, just me on the inside was just getting ready to go like the world's just not ready for this yet. Mm. You know? And I think maybe there was something in that is that it, I did it when I was ready, Mm. you know? And, and 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 that was after relationships that was after you know making using my body to produce other human beings you know i'm doing i've done loads of really good so i've got nothing to regret yeah it might not have felt nice it might have been difficult you know to have had a healthy sex life you know um i only realized recently that by the time i got to the end of my relationship and before i started to take steps to let people into my world I'd got to a point where I lived the last house I lived in didn't have any mirrors Mm. and then I never really realized at the time it's like for years it's because I couldn't look at myself in a mirror but I wasn't even thinking about that yeah but whilst all that was going on I was still doing loads of really good stuff. I lived in different countries. I climbed mountains. I went on adventures. You know, I I faced off armies with guns. I <laughs> did stuff. It was great. I was swimming a lot of rivers and I'm still here and I never hurt myself. You know, all that kind of stuff. So there's, there isn't, there is, I've tried to find the regret in, in not transitioning until I was 40. And I can't find it. Yeah. There's no regret there. Because I wouldn't, you know, it's, it's, it's a very stereotypical thing to say, but I would not be the man you see before you now mm. if I had lived a very different life. Yeah. And you strike me as a man who has never run away from anything, but you're always running towards something. Yeah no matter how much it's potentially going to hurt, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I pulled four human beings out of my body, for God's sake. (laughs) I'm not scared of doing (laughs) doing mad shit, you know. Yeah, jumping in a lake is probably like, yeah, whatever. Could do this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Um, with your eyes open, when you look around the space that you're in at the moment, and maybe it's that there's something that you see that you're drawn to, or maybe it reminds you of something, but I wonder from all of the stuff that we've talked about, about change, is there anything that represents that to you when you look around your space? Anything, any object, any piece of art, any memory of a song, anything that you would use as your your little totem for change. I see. You're, you're, you're making me think. You're making me have to condense my thoughts again. Um, okay, so I, if I look behind me, you can't see because my background's blurred. Um, but on the wall behind me are three of Frida Kahlo's paintings. Mm. Um, I can't remember the name of all of them, but um, one is where... She, I think it was after, one is where she paints herself and her body is in a brace. She's naked and her body is in a white brace and it's open and you can see the, the column mm -hmm. up the middle. Um, and then I also have a huge, I have a whole leg sleeve of tattoos dedicated to Frida Kahlo and her paintings in mm -hmm. Mexico. So yeah, let's pick Frida Kahlo. In, in all her that, essence. What does that say about your relationship to change? I didn't know about Frida Kahlo until I was due to travel to Mexico for the first time in my 20s. I was incredibly naive. And it's really weird, spooky things that we don't understand is that I spent a lot of time um, when I was younger drawing what I can now compare to very kind of Aztec style mm -hmm. things. So if you were somebody that believed in past lives and spiritualism, and when I, when I entertain myself with those kind of thoughts, some part of a past life of me has lived in Mexico because mm. I can't understand it. And I don't understand it. I don't need to understand it. But when I got off a plane in my 20s to a country that I'd never been to, I knew nothing about, never seen, I had never felt more at home <laughs> in my life, you know? And, you know, as a consequence, spent the next eight, nine years that living there, fully immersed and fully at home. Just before I went to Mexico, the um, Salma Hayek film came out to the cinema, the Frida <laughs> film. And I was just trying to get my mind around, like, oh, what do I get a feel of Mexico? What's it going to be like? I don't know anything about it. So I went to see that film. And I was with a, a girlfriend at the time. And we, we, we went into this tiny cinema in Newcastle to watch this film. And it was the first exposure to anything, knowingly to anything Mexican ever. Mm -hmm. And then after that, um, my ex she bought me Frida Kahlo's diaries as well, and I started to read them. I've never read them. Yeah, they're really difficult to read because they're, they're, they're all a handwriting and painting. Okay. But what I love is, and, and I'd, I'd been drawn to artists like that before, like in terms of, you know, British artists, I love Tracy Emin and the work that she does. And I just, I connect with that, person that has themselves as a muse mm. because I often spend a lot of I think I'm I think if I were to have that form of artistic talent I I would probably spend a lot of time painting myself as well because mm. I'm just obsessed with our experience on this earth but it was watching the trajectory of her life and mm. everything that she's been through you know, the world that she was born into was very much close post-revolutionary Mexico. You know, anything could have happened. The accident that impacted her, the fact that it didn't stop her from madly falling in love with mad people, her sexuality, her, her everything. It really just, it, I'm just enamoured. And I can feel it in her artwork. I can yeah. feel it in anything that I am around that she has produced is that the whole approach of fuck it, what's the worst that can happen? She embodies that for me. And it's really weird because of who I am as a man as well. I very rarely connect 
with female energies. Mm. I don't necessarily see people as men and women, but I see people with masculine and feminine and mixed energies. So for me, she is a feminine energy. And I found it really weird for being somebody that never connected with women, never understood girls, still cannot walk into a room full of women and know what to say or feel comfortable. It's weird. It's, it's yeah, it's odd. And, and so the music, the art, everything I surrounded myself by, there wasn't a lot of feminine energy because I always found it really difficult to be around. So, and I suppose she does have a bit of a mixed energy, but she's the closest to a female world that I ever found myself kind of attracted to for many different reasons. Um, and I just, she, she's an example for me of somebody in history that has just existed despite what the world thinks about them. Mm. You know, and if you can have so much going on in your physical body, and still do all the stuff that she did. You know, it, it's, it, it's, it ties in with this feeling that I have about all changes is a continual process of the life cycle that you cannot stop. So you shouldn't try and stop. It just should just happen. And you should try and open yourself up and become immersed in it, mm. regardless of what the outcome is going to be. Mm think yeah and she's hardcore she's yes i mean when i think of her i think of strength and it's you know and there's a, a almost like an urge to go oh but there's so much vulnerability but I, I even in some of her most raw stuff i still yes. see the strength i don't yeah. it's not and the I, vulnerability I, I, that, I hate i hate the word vulnerability because I mean, I, I teach a lot in global health and international development, disaster management. So the word vulnerability is misused a lot. Mm. Vulnerable population. I just think, fuck off, right? Mm. She's not vulnerable. Mm. Tracy Emin's not vulnerable. She is, but not in the way that it's not weak. Not vulnerability is a weakness. Yeah. And I actually see the way within which Frida Kahlo, through her artwork and her writings, exposes herself mm. is not about her being vulnerable it's about saying this is what it feels like to you know lose a baby mm. this is what it feels like to experience the pain I'm showing the world what the world doesn't want to think about you know and I think Tracy Emin's artwork is very similar as well is that it, it, it's it's the uncouth side, you know, that 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 people um, shy away from, and I think I love that. It's 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 good. Do you see any similarities in you? Um, no, I don't. I find it really difficult to. I feel I find it really difficult to think about things like that. To to say who I am. So I don't know. To me, I see, I see similarities so... in height because <laughs> I'm short. <laughs> I'm a short ass. And then, and, and, and she was very, she's, she makes me look tall. I've seen the size of her house and her dresses and her bed. <laughs> it's just like she makes me feel like a giant. And you're taller than me. So she's so <laughs> something. The, um, yeah, the reason I say that is just as you're describing it, it's like you're describing this person who's, opening themselves up and showing the world stuff that the world may or may not be ready for and going yeah deal with it and that for me is such a thread in what you've been talking about it's opening yourself up showing the world what they may or may not be ready to deal with and going deal with it and I love that about you oh this is why I like having conversations with you because you make me realise things about myself that I don't think about <laughs> very often. Yeah, I just think, what have we got to be scared of? Mm. You know, and I, I, I really think that she, I, I like to think, God knows what goes through anybody's mind when they're about to die, but I'm, I can be quite certain that she was somebody that lay on her deathbed thinking, yep, yeah, I've done 
done I've done enough to satisfy myself mm. you know quite happy to leave this earth now and she had no idea because she's not she wasn't famous when she died outside of her, her yeah. bubble you know and outside of Mexico um and there's a lot of of women from Mexican history that I have read about thanks to writers like um there's a Polish Mexican writer called Elena Poniatowska and she's made it her life's work to unearth amazing people from Mexican history and write about them and write kind of semi-fiction semi-autobiography but these are people that were never famous to the outside world you know I'm never going to be famous to the outside world but I I know that I feel like I've made enough of a mark on the people around me mm. That it would take them a while to forget who I was. I think I've left enough scars, mental, physical, and otherwise. I love the idea of maybe like the last words on our deathbed being, oh, thank fuck. Yeah, yeah. like, oh, thank God. Sorry, like, <laughs> now I, have, I can yeah, stop. <laughs> my work here is done. <laughs> that would be such a dramatic way to die. My work here is done. Thank you. Die. Thank you. Good night. Yeah. Oh, thank you so much for this. You're I've, welcome. <laughs> I always love spending time with you, but just to, yeah, for you to just open yourself up again and and show what's in there, I think is just so wonderful. And I'm really grateful. So thank you. You're welcome. It's been good. It's been a lovely way to finish the day. so much for listening to this episode of Exploring the Heart of Change. You can find out more about me and my work at drpaultaylorpitt.com and that's also my username on most socials, including LinkedIn, Instagram, all the good ones. You might even find me on TikTok. And if you have a good story about change, or even a bad story about change, get in touch. I'd love to hear it. You can find all my contact details in the notes for the show. Thanks again for listening.